From the US to Europe, an international podcast breaking down structured credit one tranche at a time. Welcome to the last tranche, Credit Flux's bi-monthly podcast discussing CLOs and all things structured credit. I am your host and reporter with Credit Flux, Hugh Minch. Hello and welcome to the last tranche. My name is Hugh Minch. I'm a reporter with Credit Flux and today I'm joined by Lauren Basmajan. Lauren is co-head of Liquid Credit and head of US Loans and Structured Credit at Carlyle Group, overseeing 31 billion of assets. Lauren, thank you for joining and welcome to the last tranche. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start today by casting back to April 2020. I think about a month or so passed from the shock of the arrival of COVID-19 um, and people were being a little more confident discussing uh, some of the economic implications of the pandemic. Um, around that time, a certain narrative was reaching its apex, a narrative which claimed uh, that another 2008-style financial crisis was coming uh, and that CLOs, uh, the CLO market would be the trigger. Lauren, what's your general assessment of those kinds of claims that used to be made so frequently? First, I'd say that the, the CLO market has withstood their second major stress test with COVID. Even before COVID hit, there were a bunch of people that said that CLOs and the leverage lending market would bring down the economy, and, and that did not happen. And as you said, during the onset of COVID, there was a lot of concern that, that CLOs would not make it through or that they could lead to even more systemic risk in our markets. But that's not going to be the case because CLOs are not mark-to-market vehicles. They're long-term locked-up capital and that they behaved exactly like they should have during a time when asset prices move down or there's uncertainty in which they're able to reinvest proceeds and buy loans when they get prepayments. The CLO structure was tested a lot during COVID from downgrades more than anything else. So it certainly put pressure on some triple C names. But what you saw was even defaults peaked at 4.3% after many years of, of sub 2%. The loan asset class ended up having a positive year, really only had two negative years in, in the history of the asset class. And CLOs continued to provide credit to below uh, investment grade corporate credit in our market and, and help to, to sustain many industries and companies to make it through COVID. Yeah, I think the idea is essentially that CLOs are just pre-2008 CDOs reformatted. I don't think our subscribers need a lesson on this, but you know, since this is a public podcast, could you give a, a little rundown on some of the key differentiators that explain why those parallels are a bit wider the mark? Biggest, most glaring inaccuracy of the parallel um, between CLOs and CDOs is that CDOs were tied to one industry, right? Real estate. And that industry happened to be the cause of the financial crash. But CLOs are highly diversified, both by issuer and industry. So even if a manager loved a certain industry, and let's pick energy as an example, and perhaps there, there were some that did love energy, when energy companies started to file for bankruptcy, CLOs didn't blow up. Performance suffered for some managers that were overweight that industry, but the structure protected investors since no manager could have exposure over 15%. There are other big differences as well, like active portfolio management, recycling paydowns, and the transparency that CLOs offer investors. So I do want to address some of the specific claims. I think there's uh, one article I saw had a, a quote that said, you know, your CLOs may not have caused the recession, but they they will make it worse. I think the idea being that 
you know, there's increased leverage in the financial system um, that increases the severity of a downturn in which CLOs would be a factor. What's your response to that claim? Yeah, I mean, it, it just did not happen. What we saw was the Fed quickly move in, and that helped pretty much all asset classes. You saw stocks rally. You also saw the extension of credit through the bond market in the beginning. But CLOs were never forced sellers where other types of vehicles or or funds are for sellers. So at the very least, they were stable in that they didn't have to go and sell loans because of downgrades or or price movements. So in in a sense, you prefer to have loans or, or, or other types of assets in a vehicle that's not marked to market, that's not a forced seller, because that stabilizes markets. Do you think, as you said, the, there was a, the Fed response, there was also, you know, the, the government response. You know, given that so many CLO portfolio companies had access to, to public funds, uh, is it easy to draw lessons from the COVID crisis that, you know, could reflect on what could possibly happen in the future when maybe the government response will be a bit less generous? When I think about what really helped our markets, it was less the access to the different government loan programs and more the idea that the government was supporting the market. And for the first time, you know, they even suggested that they would buy high yield ETFs, for example. I think that signal to the market was was a big game changer and certainly a market mover when it happened. And so immediately you started to see a low investment grade corporate credit start to tap the bond market. And that quickly flowed into the loan market as well, where you'd see see liquidity issuance from from corporate credit just to build cash on balance sheets because no one knew how long COVID would last and how long revenues would be shut down. I do think how quickly the, the Fed moved this time versus during the financial crisis probably does set a new playbook going forward. And so we, we discussed some of the, you know, the negative attention that the markets had in um, over the last 10 years. What impact has that had you know, on the market in material terms, in terms of in terms of pricing, et cetera? I think some of the negative coverage has curtailed the demand over the years, both for CLO debt and equity. Even though the global CLO market has just crossed a trillion dollars at AUM, I think our investor base is much more narrow than other types of ABS. It's evident because our debt tranche is normally priced at spreads between two or three times wider than similarly rated asset classes, even though defaults and CLO tranches are extremely rare. I mean, look at the double B level, which is one of the you know lowest tranches in, in a CLO over 24 years. You've seen less than 2% cumulative defaults, right? That's seven basis points defaults a year. Um, and in the, speaking of investors, I mean, are you aware of any investors that maybe had reservations about CLOs? I know when I speak to, I speak to other market participants, and that you know, this is something that comes up fairly frequently. I think that some investors, when when they hear CLOs and they've seen the negative press, and they are um, complex vehicles to analyze, and, and you you do need specialists to understand how they work and and, and the underlying assets in them, but I think it often goes into the life is too short allocation. How do I explain this if something goes wrong? You know, it's just easier not to spend the time. In a way, that preserves this excess return for the folks that do spend the time to understand the asset class and and do the work to see how well it's performed through multiple cycles. I do hear of, it, it just resembles a CDO, and I prefer not to bring that up internally. 
Uh, do you think that's uh, starting to shift now that you you can point to this track record that goes through two crises? I'd like to think that there were a lot more investors today than there were pre-COVID. And how big the market has grown and the fact that we're likely to have a, a record issuance here may suggest that. But realistically, I think the market's growing from investors that have already been in the CLO asset class and maybe were vindicated a little bit with how well it performed and they're going to allocate more dollars to something that's worked for them before. Like I said, we've seen a few new entrants across the capital stack in, in most tranches, but the vast majority of investors today were investors pre-COVID. They just may be allocating more now. Yeah, I mean, I think another point to make about some of the coverage is that the growth of CLOs has really shadowed the growth of private equity, and the two can't really easily be unlinked. So, you know, to, to the extent that CLOs were ever to to collapse, it would it would sort of, it would be indicative of something much bigger than just just the CLOs themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Both the, the CLO market and the loan market have grown together. So both of them have had very strong growth post financial crisis. And a lot of it, like you mentioned, was seeing um, public companies go private. And, and you, you know, now we're seeing a lot of public companies go public again. But the trend for a while, we're seeing more, more companies go into the private market. And uh, they couldn't do that with banks financing them. Banks really got out of the business of holding term loan Bs on their balance sheet. And that's where CLOs stepped in and, and became really the new banks for corporate credit. So as you said, CLOs have survived um, COVID. It's now just the past $1 trillion industry. There was a huge dislocation last year. And I do want to focus on your experience of, uh, of that period a little bit. So um, what do you recall from then? And what would you say if you get a sudden um, dislocation of that kind, what's the what's the best way for a manager to, to navigate a market like that where things are moving so quickly? So so generally, I like to reduce risk in times of uncertainty. So in other words, I want to protect the downside. And when you look back at last year, it wasn't until late fall that we learned about how effective the COVID vaccine was supposed to be. Um, and, and perhaps there's a way, a quicker way out of COVID than, than we thought before. But before that, we wanted to make sure our investors were protected no matter what the outcome of the vaccine was or how long a rollout took. No portfolio or pre-COVID portfolio was created to protect against the pandemic. So we took a fresh look at what companies we thought would survive in a variety of scenarios. And then we tried to express that in our trading. Uh, Carlisle traded up almost $12 billion of loans last year in the U.S., uh, which is is really a testament to the asset class and how liquid it how liquid it was for us to be able to do that. And we tried to quickly assess the risk for each of the credit and reposition our portfolios to be all weather during and and after COVID. So onto onto this year, um, and of course we've got the great reopening. Um, you wrote a, an article for Carlisle's website last month, which I do suggest that people go and uh, find and and read. Um, but it was uh, you said in that article that um, you think we're at the beginning of a new credit cycle rather than a you know disrupted continuation of the last one. Uh, what brings you to that conclusion? So I do believe we're in an expansion phase of a new new credit cycle. When you look at 2019, um, 
the market was already exhibiting very late stage behavior. We saw low sales growth. You saw EBITDA growing even slower than sales. And on top of that, there was just more dispersion amongst performance by issuer and industry. Some companies were just not doing that well anymore. Then we go into COVID with, I think, with the late stage behavior and the weakest companies went bankrupt. Some of them were affected by COVID, but a lot of them were already not doing well before COVID and maybe had secular issues, over levered balance sheets, just never grew into their capital structures. So those went through bankruptcy, but the rest of the market took COVID as an opportunity to reduce costs significantly. They rethought their their cost structures. And after 10 years of seeing uh, companies talk about ad backs and adjusted EBITDA and synergy estimates, we finally saw companies really achieve them. So now coming out of COVID, we're seeing EBITDA and sales grow again. And, and you could look at it quarter over quarter, year over year, your first quarter loan um, EBITDA was up 21% versus the fourth quarter. If you look at it versus 2019 in the first quarter, we were actually down a little bit. But when you strip out gaming and leisure and transportation companies, EBITDA is up 17% versus, versus the first quarter of 19. And those industries, meaning gaming and leisure and transportation, those are going to improve rapidly now as the, as the U.S. service economy is, is opening up. So I think we're going to see continued sales and EBITDA growth, even versus 2019. We have really high interest coverage. We're at interest coverage levels that are higher than we were pre-COVID. We're seeing more upgrades to downgrades, two times the amount year to date. Uh, only 1% of loans are trading under 80. All of these things, I think, keep defaults very low over the medium term and even lower than long-term averages. Yeah. So are there any... Are there any sort of risks on the horizon you see? I know a lot of people are talking about inflation at the moment, but there's there's still some sort of debate about whether that's transitory or not. Um, are there any are there any things that you're looking at as pot- potential headwinds? So far, what we've been seeing is because of all the costs that have come out of our companies, even with some wage inflation and um, input costs rising, we're still seeing EBITDA grow more than sales, right? So. That means that our companies have not really been that affected by by some of the inflationary pressures that we've seen year to date. So we're feeling we're feeling pretty good about that. As far as you know, the risks that we see, I, I've actually found it a little more difficult to underwrite the companies that got the COVID bump last year and know what part of that sustainable and and where true leverage will be a year from now as people resume similar behavior that they had pre-COVID. And it's been a little easier to underwrite the reopening trade, which is people going back to service economy, traveling, going out to eat again, and going to see more more leisure activities. So just to focus on that, you said the companies that got the COVID bump, by which I assume you mean, is that any anything that was digital or you know et cetera, where where people were kind of forced into by by nature of staying at home? Well, I think the technology. I think it only helped to to further the secular growth of technology. It was more of the, well, I, I'm not spending money on uh, flying Florida or, or taking my family on a cruise. Um, so I am going to invest in stuff to do around the house and stuff that I could drive to. So you saw a lot of money being spent in certain activities uh, like motorcycles, pools, uh, crafts. Other, other things like that. And, and I know, and I don't know that the, the enthusiasm for all those activities stays when people have the optionality to travel again. 
Right. So uh, similarly to how you said you spent 2020 uh, rapidly trading your positions, what kind of strategy now do you think is the right one for a CLO manager to follow now that we're in the recovery period? What we see today is that we're, we're actually getting paid on a spread basis more than we were pre-COVID, thanks really to the effect of LIBOR going so, so low and about half of our loans having, having floors. So we're getting paid on a spread basis better th than we were even before COVID. And yet, I believe we're in the beginning of a cycle, so there should be a lot of growth. There's low default risk. Where I'm seeing value right now is in the single B part of the market, where we continue to see loans come between the 300 to 450 range. Um, and have some call protection for six months, because I do think on a fundamental basis, we probably should be tighter than where we are today. So I, I like the call protection. What's kept us wide is I think the, the record LBO and M&A activity this year. So we've been really busy analyzing new deals, and that's allowed, I think, a pause in the repricing market, which we saw we saw in January. You know, double Bs are, are very tight. They're, they're certainly good credits in, in that area. And then you see triple C's, which which have really rallied a ton this year. They're up over 10%. The triple C index is in the low 90s, which is 10 points above where it normally is. A lot of that, I think, is due to, well, it's due to two things. One is some of those companies really shouldn't be triple C rated. But the other is that we've seen the return of the unconstrained buyer or retail funds. And I expect that to continue. But what I'll caution is that when we start to see outflows again, I, I think we'll see a, a retrade of that that triple C triple C performance. Uh, I, we've saw it in 2008, late 18 into 19, where when you see retail money pull back, risk mainly triple C's underperform. What's the what's the risk in the in the what sort of time frame are you thinking there might be some of that pullback? Well, that depends on your your view of rates. Usually. Um, we see retail flows correlate to 10 years, to the 10-year and the expectations for, for rates. So um, even with the 10-year this, this week moving down to 1.3%, we still saw inflows into the, into the loan retail asset class. I think that's because there's the expectation that over the next couple of years, rates are going to continue to rise. So I don't expect that expectation to change anytime soon, but I'm never, never accurate on, on it either. Uh, but when it does, I think you see you see the risk trade-off. Yeah. So uh, when are, what are some of the opportunities for new business? Do you think in the upcoming uh, credit cycle compared to compared to the previous one? Yeah, you know, I, I do think there just continues to be a lot of demand for the floating rate asset class because of the duration risks uh, that that maybe weren't as much of a concern the last few years and, until we went through COVID. So I think there's the opportunity for new investors to come into both bank loans and, and the CLO market when they're looking at their fixed income bucket and saying, well, how do I deal with all this duration risk and where do I find excess spread? When you think about CLOs, for example, or CLO equity, they were modeling low teens returns for CLO equity when LIBOR was at 5%. The models still suggest low teens CLO equity returns and yet LIBOR is almost zero. And that, that seems like a very, very compelling argument um, for, for more demand there. Yeah. I remember there was a lot of discussion around this time last year where I was taking part in several virtual conference panels about how I think this question came up a lot. It was how is the COVID crisis different from uh, the great financial crisis? 
Uh, I wanted to put that to you again, but just regards to the recovery this time, having invested through both, what are some of the similarities and differences? One was a once in a hundred year, well, I guess maybe both of them were, but no, I never thought I'd live through a global pandemic. So that was a different, a different type of crisis where not only were you worried about your job and what the financial markets were going to do, but you were worried about your health and the health of your family. And you were, you were spending time between your computer and, and, literally windexing fruit. Um, so, so that's a very, very different environment than just the panic of, of a meltdown in the market. What we also saw was just the unbelievable support that we talked about from, from the Fed and helping the markets come back very quickly. And in the offset of COVID, you saw a lot of strategists come out and say, we're going to see defaults in the double digits, low teens. Um, and in fact, we peaked at 4.3%, which is less than half of where we were during the financial crisis. So I think it was a much quicker snapback. There was more liquidity in the system that that helped companies get through a period of time where their revenue just shut down, right? They were closed for business. That was a much harder thing to analyze than during, during the financial crisis. When, when businesses were continuing to operate, they were just doing, doing worse or their sales were down. So it, it felt unbelievably different than, than the last, you know, the last default cycle. But it was it was also very very quick. Yeah. Um, so my final question to you is: what uh, what are the some of the challenges that you are facing in the in the market today as a CLO manager? I know it, it seems like everything is coming up roses, but there must be there must still be some sort of areas of difficulty that that you're working through. So if you could talk a little bit about that. So I have to say our market is wonderfully boring right now. We're having companies perform well. There's a lot of M&A and LBO. So we have a decent amount of new issue loans to choose from. We got a reprieve from repricing since the first quarter, though I do think they'll reemerge. Uh, liabilities are, 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 are tighter than they were pre-COVID. Uh, and we think that defaults are going to be low. So, so it's, a, it's a very good market to operate in. But one of the challenges is how busy our market is. The second quarter was the busiest CLO quarter ever. Only, and, and the first quarter was the second busiest CLO quarter ever. We're likely to have a, a record year of new issuance, but we also would like to get a lot of refinancings and resets done as well because most of the two, well, pretty much all of the 2020 deals should be refinanced or reset because their cost of capital is really high. And then you look backwards and you see a lot of the 2017 and 2019 deals that also would make sense to, to open up and see if, if we could reduce, um, reduce costs. And so it's really become a pipeline problem. And that, I think, is probably the, the most frustrating thing that we're dealing with right now is figuring out how to quickly address all the capital structures that should be addressed and what are the resources that we have to do that with. I'm sure that the audience is aware it's just it seems like we're um, constrained by some some of the uh, rating agencies and other pipelines of dealers. Lauren Basmajian, thank you so much for joining The Last Tranche today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Last Tranche. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Credit Flux and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share our content.